Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. And government in a time when it's really tricky to talk about those things together. Uh, looking into what uh, is, is really called of us to do concerning civil obedience. And before we dive into all that, what I'll do is I'll just kind of back up a little bit in Romans for us for a second and and remind us of what's come before so we can understand maybe why this is here. Romans chapters 1 through 11 focus extensively on salvation uh, by grace, Uh, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the bedrock that that Paul set before us at, at the beginning of Uh, the book, that creation was marred by sin and its rejection of God, the creator, and that because of sin, the the world's actions and their thinking and their disposition are are twisted and broken. They're not what they should be. And that humanity in its brokenness has no righteousness of its own uh, to save us. So uh, the really thing that Paul was pressing at the beginning is we could collectively search the world for righteousness, like a college kid looking through uh, the couch cushions for, for change, and we would not find enough to spare a single soul. There is no righteousness of our own to try and cling to to save us. And this is why God sent Jesus, the one who is righteous for the problem of our sin. Jesus came, lived the perfect life, and then died on the Roman cross to pay for sins that he did not commit. All of Paul's work was to show us uh, that through Christ is uh, salvation. We won't save ourselves through uh, good behavior, uh, through anything that we have done. Salvation is just a free gift of God through Jesus. When our faith is placed in him, this is how you are saved. Both Jew and the Gentile come to salvation this way, rich or poor, educated or not, all receive salvation through Jesus by believing and trusting in him. Again, this is a gift from God through the Son of God, received only in faith of God, you don't save yourself, right? You did a whole lot of work. It doesn't matter where you come from, what you think you've done. There's nothing that you can do to muster an ability to save yourself. Salvation is only in Christ. It is all him. And while all of that is true and beautiful, Paul shifts his focus in chapters 12 through 15 to something else. He says, therefore, in light of all that, in light of, of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, in light of it's, it's Jesus that saves you and not you, all of the things that have been done for you in grace, in light of all of that, this is now how you should live when you walk inside of that. This is how you live a life that is pleasing to God. And Paul isn't switching from a salvation of grace to a salvation of works here. He's saying because you've been given grace, this is how you should now live. The underlying theme for us in these parts of the book is salvation leads to a changed life. That's one of the things I hope that you've held on to over the last like month or so is if your life looks the same after you say you follow Jesus as it did before you said you follow Jesus, there's something wrong. Salvation leads to a changed life, a new life, a, a Jesus following life. And then Paul is going to show us in this part of the book, and this is how you actually follow Jesus. Uh, He kicked off that with the text that Blake preached four weeks ago. Uh, A changed life looks like one that's not conformed to the world. Instead, it is renewed and shaped by God. Believers don't look like the world around them. The cultural winds and waves and movements and fads do not shape you. The, The Father and the Holy Spirit shape you through 
the scriptures, and this kind of means some things. It means you're not going to look like everyone else around you. You're going to seem odd and, and off to them because the Father is shaping you and forming you as you go. And then Paul spoke after that about the gifts of the Holy Spirit given to the church to be functioned in in humility. And, and what that was showing is that we should think of ourselves as something larger than ourselves. We're a part of the body of Christ. We're living for something and in something and a part of something that's bigger than us. So we get to humbly use our gifts as a part of the body of Christ to edify the body, not to make ourselves look good, but to build up this beautiful thing that we've been brought into. And then Garrett preached over the last couple weeks, and then this affects greatly your view of Christian love, how you love genuinely the people around you, and it affects also Christian vengeance. Do not repay evil for evil. All of those texts we need to remember, they're not mere suggestions. They're not whims of Paul. They're not preferences of Paul. They're not things only from a certain culture at a certain time. These are explicit things that you are called to do if you follow Jesus. And this is where we need to take a little bit of a stand. And so many people, when you take a stand, like, oh, you're a legalistic. No, no, no. Grace doesn't mean you do what you want. Grace means... The gift of Jesus saved you. Thank goodness you didn't have to save yourself. But once you're in grace, there's a certain way that you're called to live. Again, those things were not recommendations. Uh, They are the call for what it looks like to follow Christ. Once you've received him, you're obligated to follow him in this way. Paul is going to push us uh, to show us how to follow Christ. And the the question that naturally arises for us, if we're honest, is this. Do I actually want to do that, though? Like, do I want the blessings of Jesus with, with no cost of my actual life? When Jesus said, hey, count the cost and, and, and lay down your life, the, the question that arises is, am I not interested in that, but just interested in heaven? Paul's not going to allow that. He's going to go, this is what you're called to. Uh, and the thing that we talked about and the, the elders talked about in, before this section of Scripture is just remembering there's so many Scriptures that proclaim the beauty of the gospel and then offer you a chance to kind of do what you want with it This is not that. These are just declaring. This is how a Christian is called to live throughout time until Jesus returns. So this opens up with a what. The what of this text is let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Like, ooh, okay. And this be subject means to yield to their leading. Uh, to, to, to make yourself one who will, who will be under the system and the leading that they have. Paul inconveniently doesn't leave any, any room for caveats here, though, does he? Because we love us some caveats. We would, we would love to adjust the statement in our own mind as if it says, be subject to the governing authorities that are on my side. Be subject to the governing authorities that or in my political party, be subject to the authorities that I agree with, that I like what they have to say. And here's the really big one. Be subject to the governing authorities that I find worthy of, sub- of subjecting myself to. I'll subject to you as long as I find you kind of worthy of my subjection. And here's the hard part. Paul makes no allowance for any type of caveat like that here. He says, every person, even Christian or not, is meant to subject themselves to the governing authorities placed over them. The question, well, even governing authorities that do bad stuff sometimes? Yeah. Yeah. For a moment, let's look more at the the core issue before we move into 
the specifics. Um, why is it that obeying and respecting officials is, is disliked almost universally? And the simple answer is we're all sons and daughters of Adam. So rebelling against authority over and over is a problem as old as the, the, the garden. Just as Adam and Eve in the garden rejected the authority of God over them long ago, just as they second-guessed God's wisdom and God's plan and God's goodness and God's authority, we all have this inner propensity to do the exact same thing. Because down deep, we often, we don't love to be told what to do, Right? We have this propensity to say, I'm going to do my own thing. And here's the tougher reality about that. And we don't talk about it very much, but we often leverage things, right? To say this, well, I would submit to an authority worthy of my submission. In essence, if authority figures over me were good, I would be oh so happy to submit. I would be oh so happy to to, to do uh, what they say and and be into subjection to them. But since the authorities over me are not, I am therefore justified in my rebellion and in my fighting back, insinuating that all of my rebellion, anytime I disobey or don't go along or do anything, all of my rebellion is really just due to bad leadership. Again, insinuating that we would be perfect followers. If only we had decent or perfect leaders. But the purity or perfection of our leaders are not the core issue and they're not the actual issue. The core issue has always been and always will be we have rebellious hearts. Again, Adam and Eve rejected perfect authority. When you read in Genesis, was there anything that God did that was harsh or unkind? Here's creation. Enjoy. You're so mean. Right? There's a perfect authority with perfect wisdom, and the God who is the very definition of love is an authority over them. He's done nothing bad to them. He's been only kind to them, and yet still, with all of that, they reject that authority. Why? Because at times, we just like to break stuff and say no. We like to be told, I- I- I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do my own thing. I-, I don't for a second believe that we're all internally anarchists but we shouldn't be surprised by not loving leaders all the time because we have a, a track record of, of not really loving authority that goes back forever, right? Another reason why being properly in subjection to or in submission to government is hard is for countries like ours that have the extreme blessing of freedom of speech, the, the, the dirty underbelly of that is that freedom of speech has turned into a free pass to talk about every leader, male or female, as if they're complete buffoons and if they're not human. Right? It's caused us to trash authorities as, as, a, as a source of entertainment. Watch, watch the, the shows, the, the, the radio stuff that you listen to, the podcasts that you listen to. E- even look at the snapshots of pictures of government leaders before they pop up on the, the news. Everything is geared to brazenly make them look like incompetent fools and monsters. So we'll, because of that, say the most unimaginable thing about people and degrade them and steal their humanity for them. And then we'll even act justified in doing it. We'll go, well, they signed up for office. So they signed up for my words. No, no, they didn't. See, this whole process of tearing down leaders and authority without consequence, it quickly leads to a distrust and negativity towards leadership in general. Where it seems as if rebellion against government leaders is what bravery looks like. 
It's what integrity looks like. But again, that does not mix with what Paul tells us here. Again, this is a degrading of leadership in general. And kind of look at our disposition. We'll rebel against government authorities. As children, we'll rebel against our parents. Uh, We have a tendency to rebel against our bosses. And nobody rebels against their elders, right? So it doesn't matter really the eldership over us. We we just love to say like, no, 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 I'm going to do my own thing. Paul again talked about there's no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Paul was saying all authority on earth has been given by God and those in authority in the governments have been actually given their authority by God. What Paul was telling us is government isn't a man-made idea. You don't have to look very far to find uh, generally a man waxing loudly that government is the invention of man. And as a man, I have the ability to reject this other thing of man. Well, Paul says, no, you're wrong. Government isn't the invention of man. It's God's idea. God appointed it and gave it its power himself. And we see Jesus say the same thing in the Gospels as he uh, confronts Pilate in his trial. He said, you would not have the power unless my Father in heaven gave it to you. Literally saying, like, hey, my dad did that. Don't, don't think you created this. You would have no power if my Father didn't give it to you. So Paul's showing us when we reject governing authorities and do all that we can to have just rebellious hearts to go, I'm going to do everything that I want and nothing that you do. And we're always just kind of pushing against and kicking against. We aren't just rebelling against men. We're rebelling against God himself. When we live in a way that speaks constant uh, things that tear down government authorities, which is the most popular thing to do now, right? Especially if you have Facebook or any type of online account, We have to understand we're definitely not putting ourselves under subjection when we do that. In word or deed. Paul says, hey, when you do this, understand that you'll incur the the judgment of God. When you reject the authority of God, you will in ways incur the judgment of him. Now we must be wise enough to know that actions and words alike show whether we're in subjection. There's a way to say, well, you know, I'm, 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 not, I'm not doing all of these things against the government, so I'm actually in subjection. But if your words show if you're in subjection as well, then that means things. It means things like saying popularized sayings in culture about politicians, whether it's a phrase, let's go Brandon by one side or the other side, not my president. Man, it means that's just blatant sin. And unjustifiable. And here's the other thing that I was talking about with, with Garrett. Like, if we believe the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, behold, I'm with you always. And my presence is with you. And I will walk with you. And I will be with you. I can't believe we would actually say some of that stuff. If we actually believe Jesus is with us, I think it would probably change a little bit about what we say, especially so brazenly. And I, I tried to kind of pick on both sides there. Because we both do it. We, we need to be careful. Some may say, well, come on, man. Like, those are just words. It's not a big deal. It's not like I'm actively rejecting the government in my, in my day-to-day action. While that may be true, look at the biblical precedent and what it asks us to do. The Bible calls us to pray for our leaders. 
We're called to pray for them and pray for our people that will have good leaders and, and be in a, in a good position to tear down everything all the time is definitely not fulfilling that and can't possibly be viewed as being in subjection to the governing authorities. We've got to be careful with what we say. If you're worried that I'm advocating for silence, to follow blindly and quietly, to just... You know, in the words of some, to just be blind sheep who go along with everything. No, I'm not. We'll talk about that towards the end of the sermon. There's definitely a time to speak up. There's definitely a time to rebel against. Here's the problem, though. We need to be much wiser about where and when we choose those fights. We've got to be wiser about what we say, how we say it, what we do. There will be times to say no. But if we're lashing out about everything, how will we possibly understand when are the right times and when are the wrong times? So we've covered the the what, to subject to the governing authorities. Now we look at the why. We already know that part of the why that we subject ourselves to governing authorities is because rejecting them is a form of rejecting God. We've already seen that. If God put the power in place and he has given government authorities their power, when you reject them, you're rejecting God. So we see that, but also... What are the other reasons uh, that, that rejecting them is, 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 is not a good thing? Paul says that rulers are not meant to be a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Which is to say that rulers and governing authorities are meant to exist to say uh, so that they can contain evil and restrain bad in our culture. Again, in government's purest form, does it happen this way all the time? Unfortunately not. But in government's perfect form or in its purified form or healthy form, it's supposed to restrain evil, put boundaries on evil. So if you're doing good, Paul says, hey, you should have nothing to fear. If you're doing good stuff, you shouldn't have anything to fear. But if you're doing bad things, Paul says the government has been given the sword, which is the ability to punish. The ability to correct wrongdoing to execute judgment upon the wrongdoer. So if you're doing wrong, you probably should actually be a little bit worried. Now, this presses us into something, the idea of separation of church and state. We, as a culture in large, are incredibly unaware of what that actually means and why it was created. Right? That, that phrase, that, that understanding was created for a very specific reason. Uh, the church is meant to guide people in the world to Jesus. This is their functional job, right? To, to go and to evangelize, to share the gospel, to share the person and work of Jesus, inviting the world to come in. That's the church's main job. They're meant to hold the keys to doctrine and theology, meaning the church is the one who, who shows you uh, what doctrine means. It points out what's right and wrong biblically. Um, it, it points out heresy. The church is meant to do this, and the church is also called to carry out discipline over spiritual matters, but the discipline that they carry does not come with the sword. They do not get to use the same type of discipline. That is only the state. So that means that the state or government is given the, the sword to power, and the power to, to punish. What does this punishment look like? Well, it looks like things from a fine to, to jail time to even the loss of life to restrain evil. This is what they are given. They, however, have not been given the power to mandate belief. The state should not and cannot 
decide matters of, of theology or doctrine. The state should never tell families what to believe or, or how to believe, and they should never discipline spiritual issues as well through things like excommunication. So, so here's where those mix. If, if that's true, if the state's supposed to have the sword and, and be able to punish in different ways, and the church is the one who, who shares Jesus, who pushes uh, out the message of Jesus, who, died, who decides theological issues, if those are supposed to be their camps, many think now that if a law is created that agrees somehow with the Bible, that there's been a violation uh, of the separation of church and state. Right? And then they claim words like this, well, you cannot legislate morality with that. But that's not what the separation of church and state was actually created for, even what it means. The separation of church and state was to make sure that the government kept their hands off the theology and that the church kept their hands off the sword. We don't discipline in that way. We don't have the sword in our hands. They do. And, and they don't decide matters of theology. This understanding, too, of legislating morality over and over and over. You can't legislate morality. Well, what do you think don't murder is? It, it, it's a version of morality. We always legislate morality. The issue is not whether you legislate morality. It's whose version of morality are you legislating? And furthermore, if, if God is the God who is the creator of all the universe and has wired things to work in a certain way, and, and there's a way in morality that's supposed to actually be for our benefit, then it should naturally happen that things in the Bible should trickle down into law because that's how things work best. It's not a violation of the, uh, the separation of church and state. That's actually just a, a government recognizing this is the truth of how the world works, so we're going to kind of put that in there. We've got to be smarter about our words. Hopefully I haven't lost you. What are modern examples of the state and the church getting wrong? Or even just historical examples. The Crusades. This is the church taking the power of the sword. Right? We're going to convert you by the sword of their word. Choose. No. The church is not meant to have the sword in their hand. If you look in Eastern Asia now, what, what is happening there, and it's happened for a long time, where it's literally outlawed to be a Christian, and you cannot have a Bible. That is the, the, the state... Uh, trying to dictate matters of belief that shouldn't be happening. You want to look on the other side of the church trying to get the sword again. Uh, in different places, Islam is trying to institute Sharia law, which is the church telling certain places what is, is going to happen and you'll die if you don't do it. Again, this is why the separation of church and state is there. The government should not tell people what to believe ever or anywhere. And the church should not be trying to punish people who do not believe ever or anywhere. This is what that separation means. I hope that we'll get wiser in understanding that. This raises a question maybe at this point in the text for Paul. Why would Paul seemingly take on government out of left field here in Romans? So we're looking at like 1 through 11, uh, faith alone, through grace alone, uh, like all, all this beauty that's happened. And, and then he's talking about how to live. And we're like, okay, don't be conformed, generous love or genuine love, don't have vengeance, obey the government. You're like, what? Like, what? Why, why, why did you do that? Were you chasing a score? What, what happened there? It looks like it's thrown in randomly, but it's not. Here's the reason why I think Paul puts it there. First, we're called to not be conformed to the world in chapter 12. While it's popular to rebel against and reject and tear down every ruler around, to be a light in the darkness, to be salt in a world of decay, 
means that we're not gonna do that. We're gonna live counterculturally through subjection, praying for our leaders, living peaceably to the best of our ability under them and not lashing out to buck the system at everywhere possible. It fits perfectly in that. And there are some ways when the, when the government tries to take matters of belief, that tries to press matters of belief, there's also a moment to not be conformed to the world that we have to understand when to tell them no, which comes later. Second, when Paul said, don't take vengeance into your own hands in chapter 12, if you critically think, I think this raises a question, well, then who does? If I can't repay evil for evil, then who's going to repay that guy for the evil they did to me? And Paul answers the question, who is meant to, on this side of eternity, repay evil for evil? Who's meant to, to avenge wrongdoing? The government with a sword in the hand. God has literally given them the ability to restrain evil through punishment with the sword. They are given the sword to, to push the wicked back, to avenge things that are done wrong, and, and to hold and restrain things. And here's the understanding. When the government misses the ball for that, which they will quite often... Go back to what it said earlier in the book. When they do, King Jesus will come with a sword in his hand and he'll, he'll deal with it. The government deals with it now. Jesus will deal with it later. And what is that telling our hearts? You don't ever have to pick up the sword against someone. This is not extreme passivism. It's just you don't have to make everything right and undo every wrong done to you. The government's charged to do that now. Jesus will do it one day. Remember, the God who will never take a bribe. What would we see early in Romans? The God who will never take a bribe, who cannot be coerced, who, who is not fickle, he will right every wrong. Nothing will be missed, so you don't have to take justice into your own hands. If it's seamlessly here, I think when you think of it that way. Are you still with me, maybe? One, Garrett is cool. Uh, verse seven. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Uh, The Pharisees tried to trap Jesus by asking him a question um, in his ministry. They said, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar? In understanding the backdrop that that happened in, They're asking about the Roman government. The Roman government was hostile, cruel, murdering, stealing. And Paul knows all of this, and he's still writing, be in subjection to the governing authorities, right? So the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar, was a really big one because that means their tax money of the Jews would go to fund further conquests of Rome. Rome's doing terrible things. They're oppressing and hurting. They're they're a machine of destruction. And they're going, if I give you money, you're going to steal more land just like you did for my family. Should I fund your evil? Should I support evil with my money by giving money or should I rebel? This is a deep question that that they're asking. The Pharisees asked it because they've believed if Jesus said, no, don't do it, well, Rome's going to get their money and they're going to come in and, and they're going to kill him for insurrection. And if he did say to pay it, they figured that they could trap him and say that Jesus was actually evil because he's trying to support the sinful practices of Rome. So they think that they have him in a gotcha, but Jesus said, okay, here, let me see a Roman coin and he asked whose face is on it. The person nearby answered, well, it's Caesar's face that's on it. And Jesus said, okay, well, then render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is, what is God's. This is answering the entire question here. If we want a fundamental disposition of government, this is probably the best thing to take from it. 
what is he saying? He's saying, okay, give government what is owed to them, what is theirs. If they minted the money and they ask for taxes, then give it to them because it's theirs. Their picture is on it. It is theirs. They own it. Give, if they're the creator and the owner, give them what they've created and give them what they own. Their image is on that money. So if they ask for it, give it. Which leaves us thinking, well, okay, well then why did God, or why did he say give to God what is God's then? Well, the answer is for the, kind of the same reason. God's image is on our hearts. God created us in his likeness. We are his creatures. We are, we are his. And since we are his creation, Jesus was saying in, in, in clear terms this, give the government what is theirs, but your heart, your allegiance, your worship, your life, your family's belief, that is God's. Give that to God and God alone. Here in verse 7 is most certainly Paul referencing Jesus. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. He's going, hey, man, how do, I, how do I answer this? Well, Jesus talked about this perfectly. And, and what does this mean? Again, why I said that there are, there are limits. There are limits to our subjection and our obedience. If the government demands that you do things that God has commanded you not to, or if the government commands you not to do things that God has commanded you to do, in those moments, what has happened? The government has overstepped their role. They've reached past issues of governing and the sword and structure, and they've tried to enter into the realm of faith and obedience. And at that point, we're called to and obligated to civil disobedience. Why? Because in those moments, if you do what, you say, what they say, you're going to be rendering to Caesar what is God's. You're going to be giving the government what is God's. There is a moment in time where many will have to go say, no, I won't do that though. I'll, follow, I'll, like, I'll be a good citizen, I'll follow, I'll pay my taxes, I'll whine about it because it's too much, but I won't sin. We've, we've got to understand where the lines are and what mountains that we're dying upon because the government does not get the allegiance of our heart, only God does. We have to remember the front verse of this. Paul is calling us to obey the government as a way of obeying God. So this is really important, right? Because he's not going to obey the government as a way of loving them and agreeing with everything they do. He goes, no, 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 no. Some of those guys are fools. I added that. That wasn't actually in the word. Uh, as your act of obedience to them, understand that you're sacrificially obeying me. So if the government is asking you to disobey God, then you'd no longer be in obedience to him to follow them. At this point, Obedience to the government would be disobedience to God. Does that make sense? Here's where the line is. If they call you to sin, you say no. If they call you to even things that you don't like or think are dumb, you remain in subjection to them. Hear this. Paul was jailed multiple times for preaching the gospel and refusing to be quiet. He was not a pacifist to believing like, I need to do everything that you say all the time. God called him to proclaim the truth of Jesus. Because of this, he refused to listen to government authorities when they silenced him. So that's why the guy would be put in prison. Then they, they would like quietly try and remove him because they knew what he did was wrong. And then he'd go share the gospel all over again. They're like, what do we do with this guy? You're like, I don't know, but I'm going to listen to God and not you. He would disobey. Peter told governing officials when they tried to silence him, he said, hey, it's better for me to listen to God than to listen to you. 
I'm not trying to reject everything you do, but God has told me to proclaim his word and his name, and I'm going to do that even if you've told me to be quiet, so kind of do what you will, but I'm going to listen to him. He believed that there was a time for civil disobedience. Daniel, in the Old Testament, he was thrown to the lions. Why? Because he prayed at times when they called him not to. His buddies Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got thrown into fire. Why? Because they refused to worship a pagan god. The government put forward this thing, like, hey, guys, we're going to worship this thing, and this is what we're going to do. If you don't do it, we're going to kill you, and they're like, hey, we're not going to do it. Threw them into a furnace before it. There is clear evidence all over the Bible that there are times when governments will overstep and ask you to obey in ways that will cause you to disobey the word of God. And at that point, disobedience is what obedience looks like. Again, that can't be stated clearly enough. Disobedience to them is what obedience to God looks like in those specific cases. Let me, let me backtrack. Disobeying the government out of preference is not what he's talking about. I don't like that policy. I don't like that guy. I don't like that system. Is it sinful? No, but it's dumb. Too bad. Like, this is what he's calling us into. Disobedience only when it's called to sin. Here, here's the thing as well that we should probably be wise in. We love to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Well, they wanted me to sin this one time, so I'm going to reject everything that they do from here on out. No. You reject the sin when it comes. And you try to be a good citizen outside of that. Have, have I lost you? There are many times when we're going to be called to speak up when the government mandates sin. It's not asking you to be quiet all the time. It's asking you to be more specific and cautious about what you speak out about. John the Baptist, why did he get beheaded? Uh, because he told a government official that, hey, you're sleeping with your brother's wife, that's wrong. Right? There's a biblical precedence for calling out evil and calling out sin when we see it but we're not called to voice and stand against just issues of personal inclination. Does this mean you can't be passionate about the political process? No, that's not what it means. But we probably need to be careful to be passionate and in subjection at the same time. Like not to lose respect, not to lose understanding, not to lose reverence, and to remember in the things that we say and the things that we post and the things that we do that Jesus is with us and we're trying to show the world Jesus through what we're doing. Be ashamed to show people Jesus and going to church and family rhythms and all the stuff we do and then just act a crazy fool when it comes to government and people go like, I don't want anything to do with that, Jesus. As we wind down, there are three main mistakes that believers make regarding the government that I could see at least. The first one that Paul warned about here is we ignore them and disobey them out of rebellion. The first mistake is you just think too little of government. They're all fools. I'm not going to do what they say. I don't like them. They're not, not my thing. I'm just, I'm going to ignore them. And Paul reminds us, well, God put them in their spot for a reason. Respect that. Well, I don't respect them. Okay, but respect God. Be, be careful with what you do. Don't think too lowly to where you kick against everything that someone's doing because you think they're a fool. The second mistake, and we don't all make this one now as much, but it happens all throughout history, is many try and overthrow the government like religious zealots in Jesus' day. This is the person that's all too eager to go to violence. Again, 
Paul says, guys, put the government authorities in their spot for a reason. The end of election never happened at any point when God goes, man, I just didn't see it going that way. I don't know what I'm going to do now. This did not happen ever. Again, remind yourself if your bent is just to war against and kick against and rage against or fight against, if they're not demanding you to sin, you have no cause to fight. Jesus, again, reminded us multiple times he is not bringing his kingdom through the sword, but through faith. He'll come back with a sword one day. But the beauty of his kingdom is it doesn't, it doesn't uh, spread through terror and violence and sheer dominance. Be careful. The third is this. This is the one that I think happens quite often in modern times. The call is to subject yourself, not to blindly obey and do everything they say. Subject yourself to the governing authorities. Say no when they ask you to sin, but subject yourself. Many don't just subject themselves to the governing authorities. They worship them. Like they go further and expecting government authorities to, to, to bring the peace that only God can give. Expecting government authorities to be the savior and fix every issue. And I'm, I should never have any problem. I should never have, have a, a, an issue and I should never struggle and I should never, just never anything ever. The, the government's going to fix all of that. that. That is an elevation. You've passed subjection. You've gone to worship, giving them your allegiance. And if you're so dependent on a government authority fixing all things to you, you'll quickly begin to disobey God in order to keep the amenities that the government promises you. Do not bend on doctrine in the hopes that government will fix things for you. Three different ways. I think that different personalities will do all of them. Ah, just I'm not going to pay attention to the government at all. I'm going to war against the government. I'm going to worship the government. We're called out of all of those mistakes and into something else in the text. Here are the proponents. Subject yourself to the governing authorities in areas that aren't sin. Be a good citizen. Seek the welfare of your city. Hope for the best out of your city. Hope for the, the best even out of the political figures that you don't like. Remember, we don't return evil for evil. We don't, we don't wage against our enemies in, in, in the same way. We're called to respect where respect is due. We're called to rest in the sovereignty of God, knowing that nothing is out of his hands, and to make sure that we give God what is God's and respectfully give the government what is theirs as well. Here's the thing. The whole time we're called to hold on to hope that one day King Jesus will come back and rule perfectly. One day kings and kingdoms will all pass away and Jesus will bring in his reign and rule perfectly and it'll last forever. This is the Christian hope, a restored kingdom under a perfect king. What our hearts need to remember is we don't get that here though. We get that when he returns. Just think of the beauty of this that we get to look forward to one day. I don't know anybody who's been like super stoked over politics for the last like five or 10 years in general, right? Like, I love it all. One day we're not gonna try and decide between the lesser of two evils anymore. Thank God. One day we're not gonna rage this way. One day we're not gonna sit back and go, what in the world? That is the... How in the world can you do that? Like one day the perfect king is going to come back in and we're going to go, oh, I've got a good leader who leads me well and he loves me well and he cares for me well and he's not evil and he's not looking out for himself. And he's not doing all, like one day we just get to rest under King Jesus. 
if we put too much hope in the here and now, we're always going to be frustrated, not realizing that we still get that. We just have to wait for it. We get it later. I want to point out, as I try and land the plane, a rhythm that we see all over the Old Testament of the Bible. If, if you look through, especially Judges and, and Samuel and Joshua and some of the books in there, I've been reading those over the last little bit. And this thing just happens almost like Groundhog Day on repeat. A nation forgets God, ignores his commands, and just begins to worship other things. And then God judges them in real time for it. But that judgment looks maybe shockingly different from what you would expect. How does he judge them? He gives them bad leaders. He gives them what the Bible calls foolish and worthless men to lead them. And through those leaders comes all kind of calamity and strife and pain. And when that happens, the directions biblically are exceptionally clear. The directions aren't rebel against the leadership and the government radically. The directions are repent. You personally, search your heart. Look at what you're worshiping. Look at what's in your hands. Look at what you're doing and return to the Father one person at a time. It's not to pray for a governmental overthrow. It's not to pray for salvation via new election. But it's to pray that God would restore people through right living and through reverence to a father who's good and a restoration of proper worship. I'd be lying if I said I love the way that our government looks the past several years. Right? When both parties have had it, I haven't liked it. Okay? I think many of you, Democrat or Republican, can share that same sentiment. The call for us then is to pray though. Search our own hearts. Ask God to restore us first before we yell at everyone else. And then ask and plead and believe that God maybe could even do something beautiful in our people. I'm not down with the whole America is the new Israel. I don't believe that. But I do believe that we can call God, hey, will you restore something beautiful in our people? Would you do something good in us as I repent and follow you? Would you... Would you bring a revival and restoration to us here and now? Would you let us see your kingdom more? My hope for us is that we would do that first and that we would not lose ourselves in a cultural climate that's rich with just strife and rebellion and incredible anger and lashing out that we would be a light on a hill. Subjecting ourselves respectfully to the best of our abilities, living peaceably as much as we can, that we would be known for speaking prayers and blessings and grace instead of lashing out like the multitudes of people around us, remembering that our hope is not in government, it is in Christ. Friends, hear this as we inch closer to another election cycle. If you thought the last one was bad, on the heels of just the incredible outrage over like Supreme Court decisions, in a time when, politi when politics is dividing us more than, than, than we've seen in our lifetime, this passage is needed more than ever, that we would be citizens 
who know how to live in a nation as citizens of the kingdom of God who have prayers for a better nation in the process under God, hoping that government will bring us good but not be our God, living respectfully where we can, and bravely rejecting where we should. But that's the hope. It's not very hard to see people overly invested in politics. And here's the thing. If God's calling you to invest in a certain area, then go. It would be a shame, though, if we got to the end and we heard, man, I, I saw you give way more effort to crushing or elevating a platform than I ever saw you give to Jesus. So I just figured he wasn't that great. Right? Oh, to be distracted to where all they saw was one thing when the best thing we didn't show them. That's where it calls us to be careful. Subject yourself where you can. Be smart about what you say. Fight back when they ask for what's God's.